Good morning. Good morning. Awesome. What an amazing time of worship. Thank you, worship team. So good. He's so good to us. My name's Amanda, and I just wanted to come up and say welcome to The Edge. Welcome family, friends, those are visiting today. We're so glad you're here. We are continuing today in our um, series in Hebrews called Jesus is Better. And last week, we had a super powerful message that was shared from Neil um, just about how God disciplines us. And when we think about that, it makes us a little angsty. But when we really, truly dug into it, what a beautiful thing it was. Neil did an amazing job. I encourage you, if you haven't seen that, or if you weren't here and you haven't listened to it, to head online to edgerer.com and you can listen to that. But one of the main things that I love what Neil talked about was he said that when we're in those pain points in our life, and we all have those pain points, right? When we're in those, it's okay. Because Jesus is with us through those. And so he encouraged us to walk through those with Jesus and in community. And so I just encourage you, as we walk through those pain points, let's do that together, right, as a family, and let's do that with him. Because that's where he shows up with us, and that's where he's with us. And today... We get to hear from Neil's better half, Brandy. So come on out, Brandy. And today, Thank you. Brandy is going to share from Hebrews 12 about um, mountaintop experiences with the Lord. So I'm excited, and I'm going to pray her in real quick. Is that okay if I do that? Go for it. All right. So God, let me pick up your pen for you. Father, we just thank you so much for today. We thank you for Brandy. We thank you for the voice that you've given her, and we thank you for the way that she hears from you and that you speak to her, Father. And we pray that today, through this time, that you, Father, would speak to each of our hearts, that each of us would leave here transformed and knowing you in a new and refreshed and, and better way. Because, Lord, you are better. Jesus, you're better. Yes, in your name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. How's everybody feeling today? Good? You got the extra hour of sleep. Yes? Was that good? Or No. Nobody told our kids that, right? So that's why I'm like still waiting for the day that my kids get it. Like you get to sleep in longer. For me, it's not about sleeping an extra hour. I've had an extra hour's worth of coffee. So I'm telling you that now. So like get ready, okay? See, look, I already pulled this apart. How about it? All right. Anyway, me with an extra, extra hour, extra hour of coffee. Yay. Okay, so what we're going to be talking about are mountaintop experiences in the Bible. We've come to our final comparison in Hebrews. So if you've been around the church for a while, an emphasis on the word a while, we've been through Hebrews. We've been walking through the book of Hebrews, and we've now come to almost the end of the book. And I hope that you've been able to experience some of the richness of this book that was written to um, Jews who were recent converts to Christianity, but because of extreme persecution and hardship, they were considering um, walking away from the whole Jesus thing. They were considering laying aside their Christian faith because it hadn't turned out to be quite what they thought it would be. And so, even though Hebrews can be a little bit hard to understand because, you know, they're Jews and there's a lot of old covenant and temple talk, if you can work through that and do the work to understand it, you'll find this book to be extremely rich as it ties sort of the Old Testament 
and the New Testament together. And so we've come to our final comparison where it talks about um, two mountains. I, I want to say just really quick, I just want to start with just a little bit of a testimony um, because Neil told me that I should. So I'm just going to take his word for it. Um, one of the reasons that I really genuinely get so excited to talk specifically about the Bible is, is not just because I love to talk and it's not just because I love the Bible, but it's because I was raised, um, I don't know how you were raised and however you were raised is totally fine, all right? But I was raised in a church where um, the Bible was highly emphasized, which is great because I still hold that value and I know that this church does too. Um, but I don't know that I understood the ways that God could really truly speak directly to us in a fresh and new and living way through the Bible. So I more treated it like something that I should do. It's good to get to know what the word says and maybe more like a moral conduct or a code that I should follow. Um, and then as I got a little bit older in my 20s and I married more of a charismatic type, um, I started believing that maybe there was a little more to this, this faith walk. Maybe it was a little more vibrant than what I had experienced. And so I started kind of trying to listen to the Holy Spirit. And, and there were times where I feel like I got it right and there were times um, where I was really off and people who would speak into my life was kind of off too. And then I'd get really disappointed because I would think God didn't follow through on what he said. And then the more I studied the scripture, I'm like, wait, he didn't say that. I just thought he did. And so how am I, blah, blah, blah. So here's, here's my testimony of why I love to talk about the Bible so much. Um, something shifted with my approach toward his word and how he speaks to us. Maybe about 10, 11 years ago, um, I was pregnant with twins. We weren't expecting that. We already had um, a very lively toddler, we'll just say. And we lived in a very, very tiny townhome um, with like a small car and virtually no money. And so um, the twins were uh, due to arrive any time. And I was like, okay, God, like, are you going to help us? Because we don't really have like a room for them, like literally a room for them. And so we had these cribs in our living room that was already small and everything else. And so um, I started praying and kind of stepping out in faith. In my opinion, this was stepping out in faith to ask God something that I just really, really needed. And there was this one night, I was on bed rest, so I spent more time in the Word than I ever had before. By the way, I looked at that time as very painful and like, man, it was such a drag. I was on bed rest. I now look at it as one of the richest times in my life. And I've since gone on to see that pattern. So I just want to stop and say, if you are in a season where you feel halted, paused, depressed, oppressed, what have you, um, that doesn't make you less spiritual. And also, it could be the time God is moving in on you and getting ready to speak in a very rich way. So, um, so just believe that right now if that's the season you're in. But anyway, I was on bed rest, and I was feeling very cut off. I couldn't even go to church, you know. I couldn't go anywhere. So I read my Bible a lot, and this one particular day, I was reading the Bible, and I was asking God, like, Lord, I am very stressed out. Um, we don't have a room for these babies. I really thought you were going to come through for us in this way. Other people told me you were going to give us a bigger place and everything else, and, and it's not happening. And like, do you even care about this? Like, does this even matter? And, and, and if not, just let me be content with the way that I'm living now. And no joke, right after I got done praying that, and I, I'm not saying this has happened often, but in this very moment, 
my Bible literally like fell open to a psalm, and that psalm was Psalm 18:19, and it was David speaking, and it says this, God brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you before, but I literally felt like that passage was like in bold or 3D, like it just jumped out at me. And it was exactly at the right time that I was praying for what I was praying for. And I'd kept that prayer to myself in case he didn't answer it. I didn't want to be disappointed or others to be. So I always kept my standards real low. So God didn't have very high to jump. You know what I'm saying? That's how I treated my spiritual journey. And I really believed he was speaking to me. And I was like, oh my gosh. I think God really is telling me that he's going to give us a bigger house. You have to understand, if you understood our finances and you understood what life was like in 2007, where we were like 80,000 in the hole and we were living a paycheck to paycheck, if we'd sold our house, we would have owed more than we could ever come up with. You would have understood how impossible this was. But I believed that he spoke it to me. And and it was through his word even, you know. So I was like, I'm going to believe it. I'm going to believe it. And I even wrote the date next to the scripture. And I'm like, I'm going to believe it. And then I like, I remembered some other friends of mine telling me that like, if you're going to step out in faith, that you should like tell other people, you know, before it happens, because that's what makes it faith. If it's after the fact, it's like, eh, you know, anyone can do that. And so it's like, you have to tell people that God spoke to you before it really comes to pass. And that's proof to God that it's faith. So I did that. I started calling my grandma. I called my mom. I called my sister. I told Neil. I started telling people, God is delivering us into a spacious place. And I believed that he had spoken to me. Even more excited than I was for a bigger house, I can honestly tell you this from the bottom of my heart, I was even more excited to believe that this God really actually does speak to me. That maybe the faith I had grown up in, maybe there was even more to it. Maybe this life could be rather exciting and and maybe I could have this journey with God that was kind of hidden and exciting and I could be confident in it and expectant. And, And I was so excited for that journey. And then it came to pass where, um, I I realize that sounded like a Christmas sermon, (laughs) where the census was taken. No, I'm kidding. It came to pass. I told you, coffee, extra hour. So it came to pass where I had the twins and we didn't get that bigger house, and we were in this tiny townhome, and, and it never failed. People would come over, and they would always be like, Diane McCauley, you'll remember this. People would come over and just kind of give us this look like, whoa, like I can't believe you're living like this. And Neil and I would get this mattress out from our garage, and we'd sleep on it in the living room floor because that's the only thing we could do and everything. And people would be like, wow, I can't believe you're living like this. And you know what really killed me more than anything else? I felt like a fool. I did. I felt like a total fool, particularly in front of the people that I had told God said he was going to take me to a spacious place. And so I kind of shelved the whole, I kind of went back to my old way. I'll treat the Bible like a moral code. God is perfect, but I don't really expect him to intervene with me all that much. I'll just be a good girl and hold on until I can get to heaven. Then we'll have this really great relationship. That's kind of how I treated it in all honesty. I wouldn't have said it. But looking back, practically speaking, that's how I treated it. And so a few years went by, and there were good times and there were bad times. But overall, I started noticing 
that Neil and I were actually, it's, it's kind of strange, but we're actually having fun in this like small little townhome. It was weird. We played musical babies. Like one night, like Mia and Ava would end up in this room. The next minute, Hannah and, and we just had to do what we had to do. It was always a mystery who was going to end up in what room. And Neil and I almost treated our little camp out in the living room, didn't we? We'd turn on the TV, we'd kind of camp out in the living room, eat chips and salsa every night. And it just, we kind of almost ended up having fun. And I remember the day we looked at each other and said, you know what? We don't need a bigger house. We're just fine. And at the time, we had a whole lot of friends that had way bigger houses than us. But they didn't have this great thing we had going on in our house. And so I started realizing, you know what? I don't need a bigger house. We can live differently. We can show the world that we can be content in a way that other people might not think it's possible. But there was always this little sting every time my Bible would kind of flip past Psalm. I'd kind of like flip past it real quick because I had stuffed down this area of disappointment. I'd stuffed it down. And then one day, I ended up, I was at my parents' house, and I ended up grabbing a Bible of theirs. And... Uh, I was in my mom's, like, study area, and I grabbed one of her Bibles, and it was a different version than I'm used to reading. I'm a creature of habit, and so I've always just read the NIV, and that's what we're going to be looking at today because that's just what I read from. But she had a different version. I couldn't even tell you what version it was. But I opened it up, and there was a bookmark. Guess where it was? Psalm 18. And here I was with these babies that were now not babies anymore. They were like four. And Hannah was like second grade or so. And I open it up. And this time it said, he brought me into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted me. But there was a footnote for the word spacious. Have you ever seen when you're reading in Bible how there's like a little script and then you can go down to the bottom and see what it means? And this Bible explained what the word spacious meant in its original content when David actually wrote it in his own language. And it meant a place of content in your heart. And I looked at that and I went, because oh. it was true. I, I was content, totally content. We didn't even really feel that we needed a bigger house, really. Until bedtime came along, and then I was all upset again, and whatever. And so right after we returned, kid you not, right after we returned from my parents' house that weekend, Neil preached a sermon, and he got off the stage, and some guy who had barely been coming to our church walked up to him, and he said, hey, I don't know why I want to do this, but I want to get you out of your house. And Neil's like, okay. And he's like, I'm serious. I want to help you. I want to help you get out of your house. It's not right the way you're living. And Neil went, okay. He's like, I don't think you know how much that's going to cost. And so, um, long story short, a practical, perfect stranger offered us the money to get out of our house. And we were delivered into a spacious place, into the place that we live right now. And so here's what I found out. He was speaking to me. He made good on the promise, and he was even speaking to me in the way that I actually, actually believed he was. It's not like he was playing trickery on me. You know what I mean? But when I took the time to truly seek out the full context and what that scripture really, really meant, I actually realized it's a, it's a miracle for him to get me in this house. That just doesn't happen in modern day. People don't buy people houses these days, right? But I knew. A bigger miracle took place here. And so I've got both. 
I've got a house that every day I wake up in and I go, God gave me this and I know it. I know it. And I don't take it for granted. It's a gift. But I also know, and I could go back to that townhome and I'm going to be okay. I will be. And so here's, I hope I didn't take too long telling you guys that, but I wanted you to know that because it has changed my approach to scripture. I've always believed in the importance of being contextually right. I just cringe when I hear people take uh, scripture out of context. I I cringe because I'm afraid we're going to set ourselves up to be disappointed in something God didn't actually say. So I think it's so important as Christians that we really, really understand what God is saying. But I also think we deprive ourselves of the joyous life and the vibrant relationship with God we can have when we approach it like he has something to say to us. You know what I'm saying? And so this morning, I'm going to pray brief, but it's going to be powerful because I believe it's the prayer he wants for us all this morning. So let's just bow our heads and I pray real quick right before we enter into the scripture. Lord, I pray over your children this morning as we gather here today, as we open up your scripture, as we open up your scripture, that your word would come alive, that it would be vibrant, that, um, that we would not take anything out of context, that we would long and yearn to understand contextually what you're really, really, really saying. And that we would fall into um, the life that you have for us and not beg you to fall into the life that we really want to build for ourselves. But God, I also ask that not only would we treat the scripture as holy and sacred, but I also pray that we would get excited for the fact that you have something real and personal to say to every single person here today. God, that is beyond me. I have no way to speak to people's personal lives. I don't know what people are going through. I do not. I do sense that there's brokenness. I do sense that there's healing that needs to happen and hope that needs to be um, ignited in some people's hearts today. And I pray and believe in faith that you will do that. So, Lord, open up these scriptures and speak to us a collective theme as your children, as one family, but also speak to each child each unique child that you've given a unique journey and in a unique path. And I know you want to take them to their very next step and only you can do it. And I pray that you do that all in this same passage in this same 20, 30 minutes. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to go on to Hebrews 12. This is our final comparison. All through Hebrews, he's been comparing Judaism and Christianity with different, um, different things. But this final comparison, he uses two mountains. Any mountain lovers here, by, by the way? I, same here, man. I just love mountains, so I just love the visual. And if you've ever, like, been to the mountains, anybody been to Colorado? I know there's some, like, Berkey hands going up. Colorado. I love Colorado. Um, and there's something about the mountains that, like, even from a distance, they just, they just look beautiful, don't they? They just look beautiful and, like, majestic. But the closer up you get, it's like you just can't believe how massive they are. And then if you actually try to start, like, walking up them, it's like, you know, there's this simultaneous awe when you come up to a mountain, but a simultaneous, like, I'm very small. <laughs> right? <laughs> There's no way to feel big next to a mountain. And so uh, a lot of times through scripture, the, uh, mountains will be used to typify or, pe- or personify God's character for the same reasons. Because he's, he's big, he's unmoving and unchanging, he's massive, um, but he's also beautiful. All right? And so there should be this awe and this reverence and also this majesty and this wonder. 
when we come into the presence of God. And so it's not strange that he would use mountains, but he uses two in particular, and we're getting ready to read about them. He calls them the mountain of fear. He's actually talking about Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments were given, and he's comparing it to the mountain of joy which is known as um, Mount Zion. Until I really studied this, the only thing I ever knew about Zion, for those of you who are raised in church that sang hymns, does anyone remember the like, we're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. Like, I didn't even know what that meant. We're getting ready to find out today if you don't know. But he's comparing the mountain of fear to the mountain of joy. And so when we read this, I just want to say this really quick. It is going to be tempting, as it was for me with the first few times I read through it. It's going to be really tempting to compartmentalize. Have you ever heard people say this? The God of the Old Testament. I've heard people say that to the God of the New Testament, as if somehow God is like uh, temperamental or he's gotten a little softer in his ripe old age. You know what I'm saying? Like, no, like we either believe the Bible or not. It says that God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so here's the thing. He was the same grace-filled God in the Old Testament. The difference is where the wrath of sin was absorbed and how we now can approach him. So the Old Testament God is going to feel a little bit like, oh, that's why they called it the mountain of fear. But I think you'll see that his heart And his heart toward us and his desire for us and with us has actually never changed. So let's go into Hebrews 12. Uh, We're going to start with 18 through 24. Here's what it says. And remember, the author is addressing Christians, all right? So he's already assuming that this audience, they are Christians. They have accepted Jesus already. And it says, you have not come. Another uh, word for that is you have not drawn near. You know that passage where there's a promise that says if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. It says you have not come or drawn near to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they couldn't bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. This is detailing when the Ten Commandments were given to Moses, okay? But you have come or you have drawn near to the Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect or complete, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's not hard for me, and I understand that it can be hard for some, to believe that God can be both um, someone who, when he speaks, you, are, you, you feel fear, and yet it says perfect love cast out fear. And so this can be strange. Is he the scary God? Some of you were raised believing that. Or is he the grace-filled God? You know, even if I do stuff wrong, he just loves me anyway. Like, what is it? And it's somehow both, and we can't attain it perfectly. But I can tell you that um, I was blessed And I don't take this for granted. I was blessed with a dad who helps me understand that both of these characteristics can exist in the same good father. 
Because see, you know when you were little, uh, you remember the whole like, my dad's bigger than yours kind of thing? Remember that? No, only my school did that. My dad's bigger than yours. The thing is, I would say that, and when I said it, it was actually always true. Um, if you've ever, some of you may have met my dad. He's like 6'6". He was a big collegiate basketball player. Like, my dad's big. Mountain man, hunter guy, deep voice, huge hands. Um, big guy. He was very, very intimidating to my middle school friends <laughs> or to high school boys that even thought about looking my way. He was also the basketball coach. So you can imagine how well dating and all that went for me in high school. In other words, if you had bad intentions, you better look for some other girl because no one was going to get close to me if they had bad intentions. I remember when I was in high school thinking it was such a drag. People were scared of my dad. And now I look and I notice that his strength was used to protect me. Kind of kept the bad people out. In fact, this same dad that other people were scared of, I crawled up on a bed at night and he'd let me pluck his guitar with him. He was very gentle and he was very soft, but you didn't cross that respect line. And so we start off with this, this respect kind of God. And I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, my job, I work for a, an organization called Teen Decision, and I get to do really, I have a very awkward job. I go and I talk to high schoolers and middle schoolers. I go to different schools during their health unit, and I talk to them about sex. I talk to them about um, the things that can happen if you start having sex now. And so it's an awkward subject. And I walk into rooms with hundreds of kids, and they've never met me, and I have to talk about that. And so I have to be very, very relatable. We have to be able to have fun because it's an awkward subject and no teenager at 7.30 in the morning is wanting to hearing about why they shouldn't have sex, right? So I have to be fun. I don't know if I should like that or no. I, I don't know what that means, but okay. Um, and so I have to be relatable. I have to be fun. This is, this is okay. At the same time, I have to gain respect like, quickly or else they'll just run roughshod. And I just wonder if you've ever been a teacher, I wonder if you know which one has to come first every time. Do you get to start off being relatable? What happens if you do? <laughs> it's a whole lot harder to get respect later. So I'm not saying that I know God or understand or anything like this, but I do know this. When I walk into a room full of kids and I have to establish authority, I have to, for things to go right, for us to accomplish what we need to get done, I have to establish who's the teacher, okay? We're going to have fun. This is going to be great. Whatever, you can approach me, but don't forget I'm the teacher, and we'll have a lot of fun. And then every now and again, there's a kid or two that kind of forgets I'm the teacher. And so all of a sudden, I have to snap back into, like, that look. You know what I mean? Usually that's all it takes. But i got to start with that respect and that, like, here's where the authority is. And so the thing is, when, when, when they refer to the mountain of fear, you have to understand, these guys, they looked back at that whole, like, Ten Commandments, and you see how it was described. It was the thunderous, the scary, and the law. What it says is, what it actually says is, when you go back and you read in Exodus 19, where the laws and the Ten Commandments were given, it actually says that the Israelites stayed at the foot of the mountain. They were so terrified, even at the foot of the mountain. There's a pretty good distance between the peak of the mountain and the foot, right? Pretty good distance. And even then, they were terrified by the sights and the sound. They wouldn't even go up there. And even when Moses came back down, his face shone with the radiance of God and they couldn't even look. It was that scary. But it actually says, above the sights, above the sound, the thing that was the scariest to them was what was commanded. 
That was even scarier because what was commanded was something that was very, very serious and it was something that they couldn't live up to. And so uh, when I read that, part of me is like, so what gives God? You're just going to give like, here's the law, even though you can't keep up with it. We'll see how that works. And then a couple thousand thousand years later, then I'll make a way. Like I used to think like that. Like why why would he do that? But you have to remember from the beginning, we had a bent towards sin. And the grievous sin of all was deciding that we could maybe live apart from him. That maybe, that maybe we didn't actually need him. That maybe we could be pretty good moral people without him. And so I believe that in part, some of the reason for establishing this law was to show them the true condition of their heart. Okay, here you go. See how well you can cover this. And by the way, the penalty is death and separation from me. So it says they couldn't even bear what was said. But also there's another reason for the law. And you have to understand, he had this chosen people and he wanted them to represent who he was. You know, we have rules in our house. There are certain things that like the Shorey family, like you will be known for this. There are some things we'll let slide. We're probably not going to be known for our athleticism uh, and stuff. like. But, but we're going to be known for certain things. We respect authority. We do not lie. It doesn't mean we're never going to, but it means there's a harsher punishment when you do that than some other things. Because if you lie to me, we don't have trust, and that's a huge problem. So to us, like, that's a huge characteristic in our family. you got to appreciate a good song when you hear it, or you're not a shorty. Yeah, I'm just, certain things are more important to certain families, you know? We're the family of God. He had certain standards, but the biggest reason he had these standards is he wanted to show the rest of the world who he was. You guys, he didn't establish these laws to, um, for them. they didn't have to abide them to win favor with God. He had already freed them. Okay, he had already delivered them from slavery and from bondage. He already favored them. Look at the links he went to, to cross that Red Sea and bring them to this mountain. I have freed you. I favor you. I love you. I want to be with you, but I can't because of the sin thing. So here's the law. Here's what we got to do to be able to be in any kind of existence with each other. And even though these sights and sounds were terrifying, the gloomy cloud and the thunder, even that, he was veiling his presence to a certain degree. If he had come to them in full glory, guess what would have happened? They'd have died. So it can seem weird to us when he appears in a fire cloud or something like this. But when you think about it, this was actually a grace. They could not have handled the weight of the full glory. Even Moses, the spokesperson for them. Remember when he saw um, God in the whole burning bush and he had to take the shoes off? Even Moses, when he was at uh, Mount Horeb, which was the mountain of God, it's the same mountain range, exact same mountain range as Sinai. He, do you remember when he asked to see the Lord's glory? I don't know if you remember that story. It's in Exodus 33. If you get the chance, read it. He actually asked to see God's glory, and God even explained to him, the weight of that will kill you. You see my face, you won't live. We really have an ability to not be in touch with what sin really is 
and how much of it is inside of us. I think we have um, a larger palette for our own sin, of course, than others. Like, I'm pretty aware when someone sins against me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but not always so aware of, like, what I've done wrong. But God doesn't play favorites. Sin is sin. And he is holy. And actually, he is no more able to coexist with sin today than he was back then. The difference is where the wrath of that sin and the punishment of that sin was absorbed, which is in Jesus Christ. And for those of us in, who are in him and this audience was, we can now stand in his presence. And we can never forget that that's a reason why. We try to live a holy life, and by the, uh, by the Holy Spirit we are unable to do so, but it is not to win his favor. I am no closer to being able to get there on my own than anybody else. But I do want to represent this loving God who has spared me the punishment that I deserve to the rest of this lost and broken world because at the end of the day, we're all fragile human beings and the cry of our heart is all the same, isn't it? And so Moses asked to see God's glory and, and God himself, I just think this just shows such grace and such a tender father. He covers Moses with his hand, it says. He puts him in the cleft of a rock. He says, go stand over there. And he, and he covers him with his hand. And he walks by. And then he takes the hand off and he lets Moses see just his back. Even that was a grace. And then we come to that same mountain a little later. And I know I'm all over the place. Um, I apologize to you now in front of everybody. We have to remember it's the same God. And his purpose was always the same. It was to be with us. He created us to be with us. And it never stops happening. From Genesis to Revelation, the purpose is always the same, and you will see that. It is always to be with us. And our purpose has never changed, not even since then. The purpose is to worship him. The purpose is to worship him or serve him, which, by the way, the Greek word latrune, it means the same thing. Serve, bless, minister, and worship. It all means the exact same thing. If you want to know who's a great worshiper, don't think of someone who sings great, okay? And I like to sing as much as the next person. You all know that. You want to know who a great worshiper is? Think, who's the best servant of God I know? That's your greatest worshiper. means the same thing, worship and serve. And, and actually, back in Exodus, right before God delivers his people, he, he says to Moses, tell Pharaoh, let my, my people go so that they can worship me in the wilderness. The trune, serve me in the wilderness. His purpose has never changed to be with us. And our purpose has never changed to worship him. Basically, everything else just fills those two things out. He wants to be with us, and our purpose is to worship him. Anything outside of that, we get a little bit lost. Anything inside of that, this is still the biggest covering. It's the whole message of the Bible, right? And so that purpose has never changed. In fact, in Hebrews 9, 14, it even says, and so we have Jesus who was the sacrifice. He made the sacrifice and he cleansed us. He, in other words, it says he purifies us from acts of sin that lead to death so that we could serve him. But it's the same word, worship him. You see, his purpose for why he freed us has never changed. We do not worship him to gain his favor. You don't worship him to gain his favor. If you worshiped really great today, awesome. You probably benefited from that. But it doesn't put you in better standing with him. If you're in Christ, 
if you are hidden in him and you have accepted his sacrifice, you are in good standing. The end. The end. That's what pleases him. His son pleases him. If you are in him, you are in good standing. But you have been freed for a purpose. And they were freed for a purpose. And that purpose was to worship them. And then we go on and we see. We see in 1 Kings uh, uh, the prophet Elijah. You remember him? The great prophet Elijah. And he's in that exact same mountain range. He's at the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, right by Sinai. And he just got done doing uh, some, some great works, and he ends up getting persecuted. And, huh, that sounds familiar, kind of like these people. And he does. Suddenly he finds himself depressed, persecuted, and alone. In fact, uh, the audience of this book despaired so much they considered giving up their faith. The prophet Elijah despaired so much, he not only considered giving up his faith, he considered giving up his life. If you're somebody that has despaired so much that you've considered giving up your life, does that mean that you're not in relationship with the Lord? I want to say no, because I'm looking at this story about Elijah. And we know later that he is definitely with the Lord in his presence. But this guy, as he was doing ministry, he was one of the Lord's chosen ones, and as he was doing ministry, he was so depressed, he said, I don't even want to live anymore. But I do want to encourage you, if you've ever been that depressed or even close to it, that your breakthrough could be coming. It could be right on the other side of that. Because right on the other side of that is when the angel of the Lord came to him. And the angel of the Lord said, this journey's too long for you. Here's some food. Here's some drink. And here's some rest. There's some very practical things there, isn't there? God did make our bodies to operate on food and rest. And like, he didn't, he didn't like make brandy spirit and brandy body. Like, it's all connected. And so there's that. <laughs> but I think it's very interesting. Because Elijah, who was a prophet, he knew the stories of old. He knew what happened at this exact same mountain range. And here he finds himself in the same mountain range as Moses. When Moses couldn't even glimpse God's face or he would have died. And all of a sudden, let's look at 1 Kings. It says, uh, when the Lord appears to Elijah, the Lord said to, Moses, uh, to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. That language should sound familiar. Because in Exodus 33, it's the same thing. God God says his glory is about to pass by. But in that story, Moses couldn't even glimpse his face. He couldn't stand at all. He was hidden in the cleft of a rock. And now God is saying, come out and stand on the mountain in my presence. I venture to say, you know what Elijah probably thought? He probably thought he had committed blasphemy and he was getting ready to be executed by God himself. Because he knew Nobody could stand in the presence of God. So when God said, really, you spare of life, come out here and stand in my presence. What do you think that meant to him? Think he was scared of his, for his life? And yet, what does God do? It says there was a great wind, so much so that it literally tore mountains apart. Have you ever seen mountains tear apart? I haven't. I can't even imagine that. The mountains tore apart, and then there was an earthquake, and then there was a fire. By the way, he would have remembered that this all happened at the giving of the law. 
He was probably terrified because it's looking exactly like it did when God gave that law. But where does it say God was in? The gentle whisper. What's up with that? All of a sudden, I'm standing on the mountain that you had to hide Moses in, the cleft of a rock, and you're telling me to stand on it? Wait, all of a sudden, nobody can look at my face or they'll surely die, and you're telling me to stand in your presence, and now you're going to speak to me? And all of a sudden, your voice isn't the thunder, and it's not the earthquake that tears everything apart. All of a sudden, your voice is a not just a whisper, a gentle whisper? What? Do you suppose God was revealing to Elijah that there was going to be a new way? A new way to experience his presence. Remember, Elijah was a prophet. He spoke to people about what was to come. You think it was an accident that God just did this? See, he did this very, very personal thing for Elijah. He whispered to him and he gave him hope and he helped him stand on his own feet. And when you're so depressed, you're you're thinking about committing suicide, it's difficult just to stand. It's difficult just to get out of bed and stand up, right? And he's saying, stand in my presence, and not only are you not going to die, I'm going to commission you to go out and do the job that I was originally sent you out from. And he did it in a way that was totally God wasn't known for gentle whispers at that point in time. I believe he was showing Elijah a new way. Go out and stand in my presence. He was showing him a new way and that his very presence could be experienced differently. And so then we see that that actually came true because it it talks about Mount Sinai. So we've gone from the mountain of fear and now we're going to the mountain of joy. And Mount, or not Sinai, Zion. Mount Zion is known as the mountain of joy. Here's what you need to know um, that I myself just learned in my studies. When you see Zion referred to in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Zion was the destination of the Israelites, kind of that quintessential end of the journey, their homeland where they were going to settle. And that is the, the most famous story in the Old Testament about Mount Zion is that is where the city of David was established. David, remember that story about him bringing up the Ark of the Covenant and then establishing the tabernacle? By the way, the tabernacle, the word tabernacle means residence. Residence. This is where God was going to take residence on this mountain. But instead of the fact that his, his residence, his presence on this mountain, instead of that invoking fear, what do we see David do? What's he famous for in that story? If you're familiar with that story, what's he famous for? Dancing. Dancing. We go from one mountain of God where it's like, holy terror, can't even look at somebody that's been speaking to God. It's so scary. To now we see David dancing. This is a whole new way whole new way. Although he never, ever loses his submission to God, and you'll see that if you inquire in that story. Here's the interesting thing. It says that when David was wearing a linen ephod, I don't know if I said that right or not, danced before the Lord with all his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark and the Lord with shouts and sound of the trumpets. It's not a mistake. I have found out that those weird phrases that you're like, "Mm, don't know why that's in there, but oh well, (laughs) let's move on. I found that those are the phrases that actually mean a whole, whole lot. 
That's part of the wonderful journey. So it says, David wearing a linen ephod. Now, I don't know why that would be included in the Bible. I mean, I tend to mention what people have been wearing. I notice clothes. I do. But I don't know why it would be included in the Bible. Here's why. He was a priest. Priests didn't wear that. Servants wore that. Common people. People that weren't all that important wore the linen ephod. David stripped himself of the priestly garments and wearing the clothes of an unimportant person, danced before the Lord with all his might, as if to say, I may be a king in front of all these people, but I remember well who I am in front of my father, and I'm a servant. Or as if to speak another message to everyone else, that I, just like you, can dance in the presence of the Lord. Remember, David was a prophet also. In many ways, he was showing that there was going to be a new way. And I find it interesting that David found so much freedom in just being a very simple, simple person. But a simple person, favored by God and able to experience his presence. Isn't that really all we are? I'm not better than anyone. Nobody is. But because I'm in Christ, I'm favored by God. And there's a lot of freedom there. And there's a freedom for my mess-ups, too. I might be a little bit disappointed in myself, but I haven't lost favor with God, and there's a huge, huge difference there. There's a huge difference in understanding that when we are hidden in Christ, there is freedom. There's freedom. And so he was also speaking, when it comes to Zion, that's where it started, okay? It started right there where the tabernacle was established, and we see a whole different way of worship right there. But then Zion actually is referring to the New Testament church, to New Testament believers. And then we see in the New Testament that Zion is kind of metaphorical, and it's for the heavenly Jerusalem. Zion is about our future, Jerusalem. So it started off, God came to live in Zion. Mount Zion was the top peak of the city of Jerusalem. And now when we see Zion, and it's referred um, in beautiful detail in Revelation 21, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem, the place where, where we're all bound. And it's interesting because it describes the heavenly Jerusalem right there in Hebrews 12. And some of the things that it mentions, as we already read together, was joyful assembly. And can I just make a note that while we are here on earth, there should be a glimpse of what is to come? There should be a glimpse of what is to come. In other words, if we're going to dwell together in joyful assembly and we are the people of God all headed in the same direction, what should it feel like when we get together? What should it really feel like? It should feel like joyful assembly, unity. Not a denial of painful circumstances, no, but a deep joy knowing where we're going. Knowing where we're going. And we remind each other because in the day in and day out and the getting up and the tasks and all these other things and personal conflicts and health issues, it can be difficult to remember where we're going if we don't see like mile markers. Remember whenever you would go on vacation when you were little and like every 10 miles is like where we were going and it's like 18 hours of cornfields. It can be difficult to remember that you're getting ready to go to the beach. And then all of a sudden it's like you get into like Atlanta area or something and there might be like, oh, it's getting warmer. You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden you cross over and you get, and my mom would be like, look, Brandy, a palm tree. 
Look, do you see the ocean? And I never could. I was always like, I don't see anything. But, 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 but you've got people that are saying, look, do you see that? I've got Christians in my life like that. They're saying, I'm experiencing God's glory. And I'm kind of like, really? I don't. I don't, but there's something about when we remind each other of where we're going. I don't know if you guys knew this, but about a year ago, I got to go and see my idol, my childhood idol in concert. Yes, none other than Janet Jackson. If you only understood how many hours I locked myself away in my bedroom in front of the mirror, preparing to be her backup dancer, you would know why last year was a big, huge pinnacle experience for me because there's not an album of hers that I didn't get. There's not a song of hers that I don't know, and if I needed to, I could bust it out right now, and I kind of want to, but it's off topic. (laughs) I love her because she's the triple threat. She could act, remember Good Times? She could sing, she could dance. Which one did she do better? Who knows? The verdict is out. She was the triple threat, and that's what I wanted to be. I loved Janet Jackson. I still do. And at the age of 50, she's going on a tour, and somebody gives me concert tickets. Do you think I was a smidge excited? Heck yeah. I mean, I went out and I got the outfit. It was like black and silver and a little splash of red. And so then Neil takes me, and we're listening to the music all the way there. You know, and it starts with, like, pleasure principle. You know, and then we're moving up and the rhythm nation and the great, all these things. And then we get to a restaurant because I was hungry. I don't want to be there hungry. Let's not be distracted. We've got, like, two hours of Janet Jackson music to listen to. We cannot be distracted by such things as hunger. So we went to Chili's. And the Chili's was right by the arena. And we walk in Chili's. I'm already excited, you guys. I've liked her since I was a kid. My first dance recital was to control. Remember that song? Control. Yeah, and I, and I, so, like, I didn't need anybody to help me get excited. I knew that I was a fan. We were listening to music all the way there. I knew where we were going. But there was something about when we got to Chili's, and you know what I'm going to say, I didn't even expect it. But I walk into Chili's, <laughs> and the place is crawling with obvious Janet Jackson fans. And when I say obvious, you would have just had to be there to see it. It was a Chili's full of people with silver and black and shoulder pads and blazers. And it was just obvious that everybody there loved Janet Jackson. And I found myself going up to perfect strangers. And you know I'm not exaggerating, am I? I found myself going up to perfect strangers. I'm like, can you believe it? Can you believe what we're doing this? What's your favorite song? Oh, really? Oh, oh my gosh, I forgot about that one. And we're just like, oh, my gosh. And by the time I left Chili's, I just was like, I could go home now. I feel like I've already been with her. I hope you don't think this is an exaggeration because it's not. By the time I got to that concert, I was so ready. I felt like we'd already, you know, been together and everything. And yes, it is true that in the entire arena, I had the very back seat, like I backed up to the wall. I felt like we were right there, though. And this one couple, they get there after us. They get there like three songs in, and, you know, they kind of wash past. And then the lady says to me, excuse me, excuse me. And I'm like, yeah. And she looks at me, and she goes, who was the opening act? Opening act? Are you kidding me? Would you want to open? Would you want to be the opening act for Janet Jackson? There's no opening act. She's enough. And there wasn't an opening act. And she's like, okay, I get it. And so like every song, you know, but let me just tell you something. There was something about, even though we all had our favorite songs, our favorite era, you know, there was something about 
I wish I had a video clip of this. When Rhythm Nation, Rhythm Nation came on. And I am not kidding you. Every race, every age, everybody gets up and we are just Rhythm Nation. And we are, and we are, just, I'm serious, you guys. The, I just can't even explain to you. We just came together because whatever era you liked, you, because you were there, you are part of the Rhythm Nation. I wasn't even planning on telling you guys this story. And maybe I shouldn't have. But, 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 but to some degree, you guys, to a much higher degree, that's how it should feel when we're together. I'm not talking about a feeling. I understand we're... We're human, we're fragile, we have hard things happen. My life is very painful right now, very painful. Gone through three deaths in the last seven months that I didn't expect. Pain, painful, painful. But there's something about this God that I wake up and I meet with every single day. The one that sees the tears, nobody else sees. The one that hears the prayers, nobody else hears. There's something about it. When I come together and I see you guys, and I go, you're part of that nation. You pray to that same God. We're a part of a holy nation, a royal priesthood in Christ. This is going to put rhythm nation to shame. And even if you don't dance now, and yes, I had to include that story. I do like to dance. We know this. We're all going to be dancing. He was practically bare and free. Simple, free. We're all bare. At the raw state of us, we're all simple. And I want you to think about the next time. I, I'm assuming my time's about up. Okay. Uh, one more mountain. One more mountain. Can we just go there real quick and I'll wrap it up real quick. And I want you to think about when God appears again in the New Testament on a mountaintop. The most famous story of when he appears on a mountaintop and it's the Mount of Transfiguration. I don't have time to read it to you like I'd hoped, but you can go read it on your own and you'll know that what I'm getting ready to tell you as I paraphrase is actually true, that it doesn't name the mountain. It says Jesus grabbed those who he was closest to and he took them up a mountain. A mountain. Doesn't matter which one. He doesn't meet us in certain locations anymore. He doesn't just meet us at Matea Valley. He didn't just meet you once when you were 17 and got saved at a church camp and never again. He's not in a place. And he was showing them that. He takes them up a mountain. And then all of a sudden, he transfigures before them. And guess who's standing on his right and his left, by the way? They look up and they see Moses and Elijah. The two men that could barely tolerate his presence on a mountain. And now, guess what it says? Three different gospels. It talks about the man, Mount of Transfiguration. And guess which detail all three men decide to include, which seems rather random and insignificant. It says, and there appears Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. It's not so insignificant, is it? It says they were talking with him. And guess what Moses stood for? The law. And guess what Elijah stands for? The prophets. And when Jesus was asked, what are the greatest commandments? See, he didn't come to abolish the law. It's not the God of the Old Testament. 
It doesn't matter anymore. No, he did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And when he was asked, what are the most important commandments of all those 10 commandments? He says, they all, all the law and all the prophets hang on these two things. Love God and love others. Then God spoke and it said, this is my son with whom I pleased, with whom I'm pleased. And in him, he's pleased with us, just so you know. And it says at the sound of God's voice, they were terrified and they fell face down because they couldn't tolerate God's voice. See, he's no less uh, awe-inspiring now than he was then. They fell down terrified. And then it says, and this is where I'll leave you. Then it says, Jesus touched them. Touched them. Okay, first we can't even look. Now we can stand in the presence. Now Jesus is touching them. Talking to them. And he touches them. And he says two things. Get up. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And so what do we do with this? This passage ends with, you didn't come to the mountain of fear. You came to the mountain of joy. And so it says, worship him. Worship him with thankfulness, but with reverence and with awe. The word worship in the Old Testament meant to bow. Makes sense. The word worship in the New Testament means to kiss in submission. It's a picture of like kissing the feet of. So we never lose our reverence and our awe. We never forget who's the teacher and who's the student. But we have intimacy. And he is pleased with us. And so if we stand back and worship him like, ah, it's as if to say, Jesus' death wasn't good enough. We don't worship confidently because you've had a good week or because you've cussed less. You worship him because his death was enough and you're hidden in him. And so worship him, it says, acceptably because our God is a consuming fire. When he first showed up to Moses, he was in a fire, but it did not burn that bush. His fire will destroy impurities and it will refine those who are in him. So our first step is to accept him. Let his fire refine us. And let's worship him with joy, with dancing, with reverence, and with awe. Amen.